Hello, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE slash our board review series, hopefully helping you all get ready for the upcoming exams as well as our board exams when we're done with residency. And this is myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, who is who who are kind of discussing uh, all these different topics we have done episodes on trauma basic science sports and now we're finishing up spine so without further ado let's go ahead and hop into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole uh, and, and what is the typical treatment for most pyogenic spinal infections uh, it's going to be really similar to any other osteomyelitis since it is technically an osteomyelitis of the spine. You're going to give the patient IV antibiotics for four to six weeks, and then typically following that with oral antibiotics, depending on the organism and the patient's immune status. And then immobilization is going to be uh, more of a uh, kind of a comfort thing for the patient. So they might do well with a TLSO brace and then any other supportive care, making sure they're well hydrated, making sure that they have uh, adequate nutrition uh, and that they are doing everything they can to help their just body overall fight this infection, just like you would want them to fight any other infection. But as they, uh, let's say you've got a guy on IV antibiotics for, uh, for two weeks and presents back to the ER, having systemic symptoms, uh, has had a poor appetite for the past three days, and uh, just a lot of increasing uh, back pain. What what are you concerned about and what are you going to do with that patient? Yeah, so you're concerned that the treatment is not working. Patients to be typically the, the order of operations is when you treat a patient, they get better. But if you treat them and they get worse, um, that may be an indication for surgery, especially when you're talking about the case of a pyogenic spinal infection. So any patient that comes in with progressive neurological deficits or deformities, which you can probably see on x-rays, uh, they could maybe get an increased kyphotic deformity or whatever it may be, um, as well as failure of non-operative treatment. So if patients are still having these symptoms, you know, imaging is not getting any better after being treated with intravenous antibiotics for a certain amount of time. Those all may be reasons to say, okay, well, we tried non-op treatment. Now we need to take it to surgery. And speaking of surgery, what are some surgical procedures that are typically performed for spinal infections? Um, so just like any other osteomyelitis, uh, debridement is going to be key, trying to get that uh, devitalized tissue out of there so that it is no longer a nidus for infection and that you're getting back to healthy bleeding tissue that can eventually granulate in and, and form a, a nice wound base uh, for healthy tissue to grow. Um, sometimes you may have to do a decompression of the spine in the case of epidural abscess, which is what we're going to cover uh, next. And if the type of surgery you're doing destabilizes the spine, this is where spine surgery is a little bit different than most because we don't have a great uh, external immobilization that 
uh, we can confidently say will not allow for the patient to eventually develop some sort of spinal cord injury because of an unstable spine. So like in an ankle infection or a foot infection, we can put a nice comfy splint on, but there's no splint for the spine or external stabilization for the spine that's reliable. So you may actually have to instrument these patients with metal and uh, continue to suppress them until they clear the infection. Uh, discitis and vertebral osteomyelitis typically uh, affect the anterior column. Well, that's because that's where the discs are. And uh, th those would be <laughs> yeah. approached through an anterior approach. If you have posterior element involvement, you're going to go through the posterior approach, going to kind of go where the infection is. Um, if you have, de have to debride an entire vertebral body, that is going to destabilize the spine. So unfortunately, in an infected patient, you may have to put in an interbody implant. And sometimes those can be coated with uh, antibiotics or you place local antibiotics in the area to help deal with that infection. Um, and if they have persistent instability, you have to try and arthrodese these patients. And uh, again, that's it's difficult in an active infection, but it can be done. The spine is very vascular and uh, they they can clear these infections with hardware in place. But uh, so that's what makes it different than, let's say, like a tibia uh, osteomyelitis. It's it's really hard to treat those. So you may have like an external frame or a splint on those patients rather than acute hardware placement. So uh, moving on to epidural abscesses, what locations are the most common and what's the most common organism? Yeah, so. These epidural abscesses are going to be most common in the thoracic spine, or at least more common in the thoracic spine uh, compared to the lumbar spine. And the most common organism is going to be our good old friend, Staph aureus. And, um, and the, these patients are going to present with neck or back pain, or some patients don't even present with much of pain. Um, these also, the patients can also have progressive neurological deficits if they have direct compression or an ischemic injury from the infection. Um, but very few patients have the telltale so-called classic symptoms of back pain, fever, and neurological deficits. Many patients don't have those. Many patients just have just some back pain. Um, many patients also just have some, uh, may, back pain may be the only thing. I remember we had a patient on service last year, this lady that was just dealing with back pain for, for a while. And, you know, our attending got a, got a, got an x-ray and it just looked weird. Like, you know, some of the disc space didn't, didn't look, this looked a little off. The vertebral bodies looked a little, a little strange. And, um, uh, but she didn't have any of the classic like fevers and neurological deficits. And we ended up getting an MRI which showed she had this um, lazy infection in her spine that's been going on for a while. Um, really tough weight. I'm not sure how she, you know, uh, I'm sure she must have been in a lot of pain. Uh, but again, so many of these patients, again, do not present with a classic back pain, fever, and neuro deficits. So if they give you that in the STEM, in the STEM question, and that's like hopefully like a slam dunk. Um, yeah. But say, again, you know, this patient comes in, they may have some risk factors for having an infection, maybe a history of IV drug use, or they're immunocompromised, or whatever it may be. Uh, what is the most sensitive and specific imaging to detect an epidural abscess? 
that is going to be an MRI with gadolinium. And you want to have it with the contrast uh, or with the gadolinium in there um, just to help get a better sense of exactly what's going on. And uh, let's say you have an MRI with gadolinium. You have, uh, it's of the thoracic spine. You see an epidural abscess. Uh, what patients may actually be worse off with a surgery? Yeah, so patients that um, don't have any neurological deficits um, and, you know, patients that are just very, very poor surgical candidates, you know, the patients that, you know, you're afraid that if you even put them in under anesthesia, they not they may not make it out under anesthesia. Um, so those are, you know, those are the patients that you may try treating those non-operatively. Again, just very, very, very poor surgical candidates in patients that just don't have any neurological deficits. And, um, you know, it's really indicated to treat it non-operatively, but if you do, antibiotics is going to be the treatment, probably IV antibiotics. Now, what are the indications to actually operate on a patient that has an epidural abscess? Um, so for wanting to operate on these patients, uh, like you said before, um, how they may present with progressive neurologic deficits, well, we don't want patients to neurologically profess, progress in the wrong direction. And so that is probably going to be the, the most uh, common reason why an epidural abscess patient is going to the OR because it's an abscess. It's in the epidural space, it's going to grow. And when it grows, it's going to push on the spinal cord and they will progress neurologically. Um, and I mean, if they are hospitalized for weeks at a time and you just see no improvement after 10 days on IV antibiotics, well, then maybe that's a good patient to take to the operating room too. Even if they haven't necessarily progressed, they're not getting better. Um, and uh, what you're going to do is with these neurologic deficits that are uh, starting, you need to do more of an emergent decompression, kind of treating it more of like a cauda equina uh, type yeah. of patient where uh, it's more of a surgical emergency. The sooner you can act on spinal cord compression and spinal cord injury, the better off the patient's going to be down the road. And so emergent decompression with or without fusion, you don't necessarily have to fuse all of these patients because an epidural abscess is more of a soft tissue problem. So if you can get to it without disrupting too much of the bony architecture of the spine, then you don't need to fuse, but in some cases, in order to gain appropriate access to the entire abscess, you do have to resect some bony elements and you may have to leave instrumentation uh, behind to, to stabilize the spine. Yeah. And so, uh, although not uh, very commonly seen here in the States, what is the most common cause of a granulomatous or an atypical infection of the spine? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that may cause these atypical and non-pyogenic infections, 
or at least the most common cause is going to be mycobacterium tuberculosis. Again, which we may not see in the U.S. Um, that often, but there are some cases in the U.S. There are uh, cases in some other countries abroad. Uh, sometimes there are some uh, in some areas that may not have access to a lot of healthcare, um, and we have people from all over that listen to this podcast. So there may be people that are that have patients with this right now. Uh, anyway, so mycobacterium tuberculosis is going to be the most common cause of a granulomatous infection in the spine. Uh, you, but you, you got to know you can also have, you know, fungal infections. Um, you, you know, you can always have the aspergillus or the uh, histoplasma, blastomycosis, all these different fungal infections can also occur in the spine. But the most common cause of a granulomatous um, infection is going to be mycobacterium uh, tuberculosis. And one thing to note, so like, you know, is there, you know, when we're trying to look at an imaging or whatever it may be, and we're trying to decide if it is going to be, if it's granulomatous or pyogenic infection, uh, is there any difference in the location of the nidus with pyogenic and granulomatous infections of the spine, or are they just both in the same place? We really can't tell the difference between them. Uh, so they are different and that, uh, can be tested uh, because it's been shown to be pretty reproducibly uh, different. So in the granulomatous infections, um, the nidus is typically located uh, in the uh, uh, peridiscal metaphysis of the vertebral body where the discs are usually spared. Um, Whereas uh, the pyogenic infections of the uh, spine are really presenting with like a discitis type of picture. Um, and even the granulomatous infections, they may present with a focal kyphosis um, and vertebral column destruction uh, due to their relative indolence and late presentation. Um, and then a large paraspinal abscess is a little bit more common. So the uh, in the uh, pyogenic ones, I believe, the granulomatous ones typically stay within the vertebral bodies and cause that destruction. Um, and so what, a, what are some other important items to uh, kind of keep in mind when you're working up these granulomatous type of infections? Yeah, I mean, you know, if they come in and you're worried about um, tuberculosis, you may want to get a chest x-ray, <laughs> you know, you might want to, uh, get a chest x-ray to see if there's anything going on in the lungs. If they have those, what is it? Basilar infiltrates, um, and, and different lung pathology that may be going on. If somebody comes and they're saying, oh, they're coughing up sputum, uh, as well. And they have back pain and you are concerned for a granulomatous infection, you may as much as you might as well get a sputum specimen. Um, sputum specimens may be positive in patients that have these respiratory disease. You know, they can have acid fast bacilli in their in their um in their sputum. And, and sometimes you may you know sometimes it can be really hard to figure out what this uh, infection is. And sometimes you may actually need a biopsy uh, of the spinal lesion itself. Uh, you know, so those are some of the things to note. Uh, about these granulomatous infections, but what's what's a non-op treatment of these granulomatous infections? And this kind of brings me back to med school, just, just looking at it here, but yeah. <laughs> what's the non-op treatment? Yeah, so these? if it's TB, uh, it's going to be that RIPE therapy, the rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. 
Um, we probably are not going to be prescribing and dosing these, but still good to know for the test because they might throw in there uh, a picture of a granulomatous infection of the spine and they may say yeah. which one of these uh, antibiotics is not indicated and they'll, they'll give you the rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, but then the last one may be a, a cephalosporin or it might be a, 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 I don't know, some other sort of antibiotic that has some exotic name but isn't quite treated for tuberculosis. And you, you have to know which one does not belong. Um, the difference, uh, so usually with uh in quotes, normal bacteria. So the staph, the strep, those sort of infections, you're giving the antibiotics for about six weeks through the IV. But with these granulomatous infections, the TB infections, they may, uh, they may be on therapy for six to 12 months and you're continuing to follow the cultures. You're continuing to follow these patients for a long time to make sure that they don't develop progressive deformity, that they don't develop uh, progressive neurologic deficits and all of that stuff that may uh, require more urgent surgical intervention. And so, uh, like I, I kind of just brought it up, but what are some of the indications for uh, surgical treatment of these uh, patients? Yeah, very similar indications from when we're talking about epidural abscesses. I mean, patients that don't improve with non-operative treatment, say you've been treating them for eight, say you've been treating them for a year and they're still having symptoms. <laughs> Uh, that may be somebody who could use some surgical treatment. Um, anybody that has an abscess or any that has, anybody that has, you know, substantial deformity. These are all indications for surgical treatments of a granulomatous infection of the spine. Um, and I think that probably does it with uh, with spine. I think we covered we covered a good amount. We covered cervical spine. Um, we covered uh, we covered lumbar spine. We covered trauma infections we talked about ankylosing spondylitis and dish and acdfs and, <laughs> uh and corpectomies and laminectomies and the french door open door you know um uh, laminoplasties uh we talked a lot of uh physical exam of the spine one of the things to note you know everybody listening to this i hope this is not your only study tool i hope you can use it as a study tool um but also don't forget to study anatomy i feel like they'll show um like, you know, it'd be good to, to recognize what an epidural abscess looks like on an MRI or, you know, where, oh, oh one of the big things actually that, that they should know is uh, looking at those axial cuts on of a lumbar spine and being able to identify a central herniation versus a paracentral herniation versus a far lateral herniation. Um, that, that's really one of the key things to know, being able to identify a spondylolisthesis on the lateral of the spine or pars defect, or, um, I mean, just, you just gotta, you gotta be able to identify a lot of this stuff. So this is just part of a, part of a review, but there are definitely other things that you need to take a look at too. I mean, I, I don't know, Spencer, Dr. Wilwan, you got, you got anything else you want to add in there? No, I 100% agree. It's, I mean, we're not going to, I mean, residency is five years and, <laughs> and all that stuff. I mean, for a reason, because I mean, the more we go through all of these, the more we realize how much farther we have to go uh, in order to, to finish this entire kind of review course yeah. that we're putting together. And 
uh, that's just how residency is. And if you don't get it the first time around, well, you have you have the next day or you have the the next rotation and all that stuff to to hammer these concepts home. And so uh, just keep you got to just keep moving forward. You got to keep staying on top of it. You can't let a busy trauma block uh, get in the way of studying because sometimes those trauma blocks like in my program I was on trauma as a second year resident for four months straight and mm. if I didn't study that that's four months out of the year where I could have made an excuse to oh I, I was just on trauma I couldn't study during that time but you got to just find the little time between cases to I don't know to listen to one of our episodes or to to bang out 10 questions and if you have three cases and you're able to get 10 questions done between each case, then you're already doing 30 questions a day, which is more than most. And so uh, just do your best to stay on top of this stuff, no matter how busy you think you are, everybody else is just as busy too. So uh, I wish I could say, I, I feel sorry for you, but we've all been there. And, <laughs> right. uh, it sucks, but it's, it's the nature of, of what it is. And uh, so just keep pushing forward. And if you guys have any questions at all, or you think, Hey, I, I think that data has changed about something you guys talked about and all of that, then feel free to reach out to us at either like uh, nailed it ortho on Instagram or the angry orthopod on, or on Instagram. And, and we'll, we'll do uh, maybe like a, a edited uh uh, episode where we go over and we're like, oh, hey, we mentioned this, but newest literature shows this or that or whatever. So uh, keep us honest, but we'll do our job to, to give you the most updated info that's out there. Yeah, totally agree. And that's one of the things I used to do sometimes was um, listen to actually one of our episodes that have like a AirPod in, like walking through the hospital or you know, or, um, you know, before OR, you know, between cases when there's a turnover, you know, that, that you're not necessarily sitting in one place that you may be walking around, you could pop one in and uh, pop an episode in and listen to it in, in an AirPod and still try to get some studying done while you're trying to run and get your food, you know, something like that. I don't know. You yeah. do whatever works for you. But um, yeah, just exactly. like that. Just like uh, Dr. Wilwine said, any problems, questions, feel free to reach out to us. And I think next we may be doing, I don't know, let's just stay tuned. We'll see what we're covering next. But um, thank you all for listening and uh, until next time.